1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Richard Ovenden, author of the book, Burning the Books, A History of the Deliberate Destruction of Knowledge. Richard, welcome to the New Books Network.
0: It's great to be with you.
1: Well, it's great to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
0: Yeah, I'm currently the... Um, 25th holder of an ancient title which is called Bodley's Librarian and that means I'm the executive director of the research libraries of the University of Oxford and they're centered around a historic institution called the Bodleian Library and it's called that because it was founded by a man called Sir Thomas Bodley at the end of the 16th century but actually, this year we're celebrating our seven hundredth anniversary as the central library of the university, um, because in thirteen twenty, the first building to house the uh, the university's collection of books and documents began to be constructed. So um, that's what I do in my day job. It's a big library. We have over fourteen million printed items, petabytes worth of digital data. We acquire a thousand new books every. Every day, we have over 2 million research visits to our physical libraries every year, and I have um, just over 500 full-time equivalent staff members. So we're a busy, very busy research library in um, one of the uh, most famous and successful universities in the English-speaking world. And I've been in this industry for, you know, 30 years. I, I read history at university. I, did a gr- I was at graduate school. And then uh, I came into the world of libraries. And I've worked in uh, four or five different libraries before ending up in Oxford 17 years ago. And I couldn't be anywhere better than the Bodleian.
1: Well, you sound extraordinarily busy, and yet somehow in the midst of all that, you found time to write this book. What was it that led you to write a book about the destruction of knowledge?
0: Well, that's a very good question because, you know, uh, libraries are really all about the preservation of knowledge. or that's one of their kind of core roles. And that aspect of the work of libraries and archives as well um, has been something which I've been concerned as that it's been less highlighted as one of our roles because partly because i think in the digital world it's all about access to content and you know libraries have been very focused on that access piece and rightly so it's it's absolutely crucial but to me there's no access without preservation and so i've been wanting to kind of highlight the role of of preservation as part of the work of libraries and archives for a while and then there are a couple of kind of trigger events to that made me start writing the book one of them was a partnership that we have in oxford with um the state library of berlin and the uh, staatsbibliothek zu berlin is um has w- one of its branches on Unter den Linden right in the heart of berlin and i was visiting them a few years ago and crossed the street from the library and stumbled upon the location of the famous book burning that took place there orchestrated by joseph goebbels under the nazi regime on the 10th of may 1933 and i thought god you know my mother was still alive was was alive when this happened she'd just been born and she's still alive today it's not that long ago that you know these terrible things could happen And then um, a few months later, I read an article in a British newspaper about um, the UK government's immigration policy, which was become very, very severe back in the spring of 2018. And it focused on what was what's called the hostile environment. So they pursued people, many of them who'd been resident in the UK for many, many years, and forced them to prove their right to remain in the UK. You know, when did they arrive? What was the documentation? Show us the the evidence. And at the same time as they were pursuing all of these individuals, our fellow citizens, and putting them under extraordinary pressure, they actually had all of the evidence that many of them needed in their own possession, in the Home Office, the government department that was pursuing this policy. And they destroyed it in 2010. They destroyed all of the landing records from the 1950s and 60s when the UK government invited people from the former Commonwealth and Empire from the West Indies, from South Asia to come and work and live in the UK. And I thought that this was a perfect example of how the preservation of knowledge is absolutely fundamental for the health of society, for the rights of citizens, for a democratic and open society. And so I wrote an op-ed in the Financial Times, a newspaper, and the next day a publisher contacted me and said, this would make a very interesting book. And, you know, two years later, it's published, and here we are.
1: That's one of the things that I think comes across uh, very clearly in your book, which is that we think uh, we might sometimes have this misconception about libraries as these dusty places where where you know people are, are just you know checking out you know novels, what have you. But as you exp- as you explain early in the book, they're really about knowledge, and as the saying goes, knowledge is power. And I thought that it came across very uh, clearly when you were describing the early the destruction of the ancient libraries in, in your uh, early chapter. Where you're talking about how these were places where you would have conquerors that would destroy them and or or loot them precisely because they recognized possessing that knowledge gave them an advantage over their counterparts, over their foes in their times.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think that was one of the big surprises for me as I was kind of researching the the kind of ancient libraries and archives, which I hadn't really studied before in any any great depth. And um, you know, there's been extraordinary discoveries by archaeologists over the last hundred and fifty years, uh, beginning in the middle of the nineteenth century and uh, going up to the present day. And these discoveries have made um, uh, made made us change the way we think about the ancient world because they found such rich library and archive collections in the form of cuneiform tablets and clay. And they show that the earliest settled civilizations that we have any documentary evidence for, from ancient Mesopotamia in particular, that they were, you know, basically they, they they were taxing their citizens, so the rulers were imposing tax regimes, that they had quite well-organized commerce with uh, bureaucracy that went around that for things like customs, imports, and exports, and that many of these ancient collections were about predicting the future. So partly they were about documenting what was going on today, in particular with commerce, so that they could be taxed, Then the other half of the story is about predicting the future, so astronomy, astrology, Um, divination and other kind of religious texts, which are about how you could make better decisions about your future life. And one of the things that came across very powerfully to me and looking at things like the library of King Ashurbanipal, you know, this great ruler of Assyria in the uh, 7th century before the Christian era, whose library is really... The first library that we know of to try and encompass the whole of kind of recorded knowledge as it was known at the time, and what he, what we know from his library is that he was deliberately targeting library and archival collections in his enemy's territory to to get his agents to either by uh, forcibly remove those tablets what we would today perhaps call books those texts about predicting the future and he would that would make his enemies less good at predicting the future and make him stronger better at predicting the future And i thought this is a kind of you know very good example of how knowledge is power how um you know as derrida says there's no um political power without power over the archive
1: now, you proceed through uh, your book chronologically, but these themes reoccur. And I was thinking about, as you were describing this, how what you're describing also fits what was the intention of the British. When they burned the Library of Congress in eighteen in, in eighteen fourteen, the sense during the War of eighteen twelve, the sense that they uh, that by destroying the collection of available knowledge, the, the knowledge available to the leaders of the new republic, that they would be able to set them back and 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 inhibit their ability to effectively govern and 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 thus impede British rule.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, that's that's exactly right. It's about weakening the the branch of government that depends on knowledge how do you you know the united states for britain was uh, a, a rogue state you know um and and it's very interesting as i was reading it you know and i've been to the library of congress many times and used it as a researcher as well as a as a colleague and it's a such a fabulous institution, and of course, this story is so important to the history of the Library of Congress, and you know, it's also a trope in American history, particularly in the latter part of the nineteenth century, um, and yet it's never. St- it's, it was never taught to me as a schoolboy studying, you know, the the nineteenth-century British history. Um, you know, it's a really dark episode, I think, in, in my own country's, um, you know, past. Is that you know we deliberately targeted the centre of government and and the the library which the um, the legisl- legislature and the executive branch depended on in this new nation to. To, to govern, uh, and many of the books, ironically, were British publications, you know, statutes of the realm, the, you know, state trials, and all of these things which helped, um, you know, the legislators and government officials, um, you know, determine how they were going to take the constitution and all those arrangements forward. And, um, you know, the, it, we have an eyewitness account of this, a British a British uh, serviceman who was part of uh, Admiral Coburn's army. And he was, you know, ironically, he was actually an alumnus of the college in Oxford, where I'm a fellow now. He's called George Gleig. He was a Scotsman. And even he said that um you know it would have been better if we'd spared the library and you know that was yeah you know quite striking that someone writing in i think he published his book in 1818 would would admit to this that it was you know it it is it, not a good not a, not a good look really <laughs> um and um and I think, you know, there's this kind of narrative also of renewal after great acts of destruction that prompts renewal in in um, realizing that knowledge is so important that it must be recovered or protected or replaced. And that's what happened in uh, the library of Congress's case. Thomas Jefferson offered his own private library, easily the best private library um, on the North American continent at the time. And he offered it as a replacement. He didn't give it to Congress. He, He asked for it to be purchased, but made favorable rates and, um, you know, Congress debated this for actually for quite a number of months, whether they should vote the money, because was quite a lot, quite a lot of money. And there were, you know, there were many needs to kind of, you know, recover um, the country after the after the war. But they did. Uh, they did so. And the library became renewed in it had even better collections. It was bigger. It was more modern. It had more diverse material from the kind of other European countries and from you know, really cutting edge European thinkers. So um, it was, it was a great, in in a way, it helped rebuild the Library of Congress into the great institution that it subsequently became, and of course, still is.
1: That issue of destruction and renewal also comes across with what is, you know, probably the most famous library in at least Western history, and that is the Library of Alexandria. It was a library that I I, was aware of, and and many people oftentimes hear mentions of uh, it it, in various places. What I wasn't aware of, though, was that it's not really one library that we're talking about when we talk about the library. It's it's actually uh, ones that have been continually destroyed and then reconstructed over a span of centuries, and and, and how it, it really you know, speaks to that theme about how so much about knowledge isn't just about preservation, it's about that process of recovery and reconstitution.
0: Yeah, I I, I think that the Alexandria case is is a really good one because it's it's also a series of myths and the myths have kind of recur every time there's a in in you know the last couple of hundred years that there's been a the destruction of a library, uh, Alexandria becomes mentioned. You know, this is the new Alexandria. This is the Alexandria of our age. And uh, I don't know. I grew up um, re, uh, watching Carl Sagan's program Civilization. I don't know if you ever saw it, but the the first episode of that Carl Sagan sort of conjures up the vision of this ancient library you know the greatest library of um, the first great world civilization um, you know in the in the in the, the Greek speaking world and you know he says if there was anywhere in the past that he could go back to it would be to the library of Alexandria all that lost knowledge of philosophers and and playwrights and poets he would be able to have access to but of course What didn't happen is what Carl Sagan suggested in Civilization is that there was a catastrophic event which the whole lot went up in flames. And actually what happened, there probably were fires. You know, some of the collections were lost. I think the Great Conflagration, which um, is cited by ancient writers, um, which was caused by the, the civil war between Caesar and Ptolemy, actually happened in the dockyards where there were... Um, places of deposit for books there was a a a decree that any book coming into the harbor of Alexandria uh, on a ship should be given over to the library so that it could be copied and I think there was a warehouse on the docks that got caught up in their battles and those books were lost whereas the two main sites of the the library of Alexandria the museum and the Serapion um, they, they 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 suffered at other times And were protected and actually what happened with the decline of the library is that it's a slow process of neglect because all that we really know about it is that uh, and what the ancient writers all agree on is that there was at one point a great library that drew scholars from all over the world and that by the 5th century, the 4th or 5th century, it wasn't there anymore. So I think that that process of neglect is, for me, the great um, cautionary tale for our own age. And actually, I was reading the autobiography of our founder, Sir Thomas Bodley, which was published in the early 17th century. And that actually cites what they call the great Egyptian library as, um, uh, again, as a kind of warning sign, because uh, Sir Thomas Bodley was renewing a library that was destroyed in the previous kind of century, in the 16th century, and they cite Alexandria again, even then, even 400 years ago. It's a watchword for civilization um, at threat. And, um, you know, uh, I think to me that's, that's a... a Uh, 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 something that we in our own age must take very great consideration of because libraries and archives all over the world are being underfunded. They're not being properly supported by their communities, by their governing regimes, and uh, society has so much to lose if we lose a library.
1: I was thinking about how in so many ways that's a more powerful tragedy because it's something that because it happens in slow motion it's unspectacular it's undramatic people aren't aware of it i'd I like to you know going back to the the you know what happened with like the library of congress where you have a destruction that provides a degree of galvanization that, that there's a perceived need that because this was a a, a conscious act and and, and also a, a concentrated act that there's this idea that that it must be rectified whereas that that slow uh, you know process of, of of constriction shall we say is something because it happens slowly and over, and 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 uh, in and, and oftentimes uh, you know, invisibly uh, to to yeah, yeah. people who aren't you know directly involved in libraries, they they just don't see how it's something that happens. And by the time they're aware of it, it's already done. And because it's happened over such a long period of time, it seems unrecoverable.
0: Yeah, I think that's right, and it's it's you know something about kind of society's complacency, and of course the great writer um, Edward Gibbon, whose Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire was you know one of the great texts of the Enlightenment, um, he cites Alexandria as part of that process of decline, and he doesn't attribute it to a single catastrophic act, but to that um, sort of slow um you know that 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 slow motion um uh, you know n- decline and neglect and i think that he attributes part of the the collapse of the roman empire to what what happened to to alexandria and um you know uh, again you know i think we need to be aware of these things today i think they they're good lessons for us to really kind of you know take stock of um in an age where so much of knowledge is has been transferred to the digital realm and of course that creates huge opportunities for sharing knowledge and for making it more accessible but the way that it's happened, very slowly, without us really terribly n- noticing, terribly closely, is that we've transferred the control of knowledge to a few small, very, very powerful tech companies. Um, what my colleague in Oxford, Timothy Garton calls the private superpowers, and the private superpowers have control over so much of the domain of knowledge, and we've let it happen, um, and have you know, unwittingly contributed to it by giving our own if you like, online labour. Every time we put a search term into Google, every time we click like on a social media post, we are strengthening the knowledge power, the power over knowledge that the big tech companies have. And even today, this morning on um, BBC Radio, I heard that the UK government had established uh, an embassy to the big tech companies in Silicon Valley. They'd appointed someone to be a a kind of quasi-ambassador. And if that isn't a sign of the shift of power, I don't know what is.
1: You talk a lot about the destruction of knowledge by rulers, and also by accident. But you also talk about the destruction of knowledge by individuals, and you have two particular cases that serve as counterpoints. One is the uh, burning of personal papers by Thomas Crummel in the uh, 16th century, and then you have the non-destruction, shall we say, of Franz Kafka's uh, uh, writings and, and papers. And I, I find that they point to some of the smaller ways in which knowledge is lost or in, in the case of Kafka preserved as a legacy that, that especially was taken by your point that you know but for that decision to preserve Kafka's papers we wouldn't have Kafka today you know ver- words in our very language like esque wouldn't exist but for that decision.
0: I, I think this is again a really kind of fascinating area i mean how many of us kind of um inherit perhaps a property from uh, a loved one our parents or a uh, a family member and we go through their property and we find boxes of documents or letters or or family photographs and we decide what what shall we do with these you know they they sometimes we think you know well we really ought to keep them um should we how do we best keep them and sometimes we think well oh dear that that's not a very kind of comfortable um thing to keep let's let's just you know consign this to the to the flames, so that um you know, loved other loved ones um, uh, don't have to read some, you know, uncomfortable, uncomfortable fact from the past. And I think that was definitely in the mind of um, some of the individuals, uh, individual cases I talk about. Um, you know, Franz Kafka definitely um, left you know explicit instructions to his great friend. Uh, max broad his literary executor that you know his unpublished work um, is not fit to see the light of day and should be destroyed at his death and kafka disobeyed those inst- uh, broad disobeyed those instructions from kafka and um you know we're, we're very glad that he did because so much of his published what we now think of his published work his great writings hadn't appeared in his lifetime but i think that 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 sort of Sign that knowledge can affect the future by leaving a trail from the past. Um, and that's all about the reputation of individuals. And I think the the case of Thomas Cromwell is a slightly different one because it's um, it's about protecting uh, it's about his household destroying his correspondence. So when we're at the point that Cromwell is uh, uh, arrested. By Henry VIII, they don't want to have any evidence that could be incriminating for their, um, you know, for the, their 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 boss, um, and so they destroyed the outgoing correspondence. And so, you know, we have some of, uh, sorry, they destroy the ingo the incoming correspondence, and all that we have is the outgoing correspondence from from Thomas. Uh, Cromwell's desk to other individuals that has some of which has survived by chance and so um, you know we've lost all of that history that riches and you know people like David McCulloch and Hilary Mantel have tried to kind of reconstruct it and done you know superb jobs at doing that but the motivation at the time was to stop evidence from falling into the hands of uh, Thomas's accusers. Now, one of the other incidents I talk about in the domain of private public private knowledge is um, the writer uh, Lord Byron, of course, famously, you know, mad, bad and dangerous to know, um, who wrote, you know, extreme, you know, for what was at the time uh, extremely sort of um, avant-garde and, and gripping uh, poetry, but who had a lifestyle that was notorious um, in, in, in British society and, in fact, across Europe. And his memoirs were, again, uh, before his death, um, entrusted to um, uh, a friend who he was told could see it into publication that would make his friend rich because it would be an instant bestseller. But his friend and other family members were so horrified at what they read inside the memoirs. And of course he was, you know, there were all sorts of rumors about him having an incestuous relationship with his sister and, um, and various other, um, uh, you know, kind of sexual misdemeanors or what were called sexual misdemeanors at the time. Um, and uh, they decided there was a kind of family conference or conference between friends and family members and they it was burnt in the grate of his publisher john murray in a room that still exists the grate still there in 50 Albemarle street in central london and that sense that the future needs preserving from the past this uh you know counterpoint to preservation is the deliberate destruction of things which could harm an individual's reputation or a family's reputation. Um, and so there are always, you know, in everybody's lives, there are these moments where those decisions have to be taken. And in the case of, you know, great writers or politicians or figures of state, they become, you know, decisions which, are, are, are you know, affect a whole of society in some ways, a whole of culture or, 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 or future history.
1: It also has a can have a very uh, contemporary rev- uh, relevance, and I was thinking about the examples you cite of the uh, British possession of colonial archives, the uh, the possession of the Iraqi archives, the uh, archives that you in South Africa from the 1980s. How, how these are, are are ones in which uh, the the handling of which uh, with with. Which have a lot of secrets, which uh, the possessors are oftentimes very uh, unwilling to share, becomes a subject of great controversy. Not not just between governments necessarily, but even uh, in terms of, of of societies and communities within them.
0: Uh, I think this is again really about the control of history and the kind of the sense that you know the control of knowledge is is a way to shape how the future will look at the past and that um, control is increasingly contested you know the hi- history is 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 has is is more contested today than i think it has been <laughs> for a very long time and i think that kind of control over kind of key issues for society you know um, you know r- 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 racial relations you know decolonization um the the collapse of empires the rights of new citizens in new countries to have control over their own pa these are issues which are incredibly current today and ones in which um, knowledge plays an absolutely crucial power. And all of those incidents of the former European Uh, colonial powers and the way that they pulled out of um, the states that were part of their empires knowledge has uh, absolutely critical part to play at that moment of decolonization and of independence because so many of those colonial archives were destroyed deliberately sometimes it was just part of kind of you know what administrators thought was good record-keeping practices in many cases, it was about colonial administrators hiding their misdemeanors and trying to protect themselves from um, uh, new rulers who would not look kindly on what had happened. And we see that um, happening today. You know, the, in Guatemala, their recent civil war um, revealed a, um, uh, an important archive of the uh, the state secret police which had been used for a for a period of time to resolve um you know many very kind of bitter disputes in in legal cases and has now been closed again um uh and and this has become you know a highly kind of contentious issue in terms of civil rights in central america we see it with the we have seen it with the iraqi archives that I talk about at length in my book um where the coalition forces um, uh, seized the arch- many archives in Iraq uh, after the invasion in 2003, took them back to the United States, digitised them so that they could be text-, text mined for evidence of weapons of mass destruction, and then kept in the United States. And I think you know there are complex arguments over why they weren't returned at the time. The last of the great collections, the archive of the Bath Party which was, you know, the, the essentially the, the, the party which had control over Iraq, led by uh, – under Saddam Hussein's rule for, you know, 50 years, um, that it, that archive has only just in the last few months gone back to Iraq – And uh, only now, I think, by having control over that archive again, can Iraq come to terms with what has been a very, very difficult past, you know, absolutely catastrophic in terms of the loss of life and the, you know, the collapse of civil society there. Um, And so I think archives are absolutely, archives and libraries are absolutely crucial for You know, uh, enabling those that kind of social healing to come to to pass, and I contrast things. Uh, Like the Iraq case with what had happened in the former East Germany, where the Stasi archives became part of a a process of social healing where individuals had the right to access their own file in the Stasi archives so that they could see who was informing on them, you know, family members, neighbors, friends. And, uh, you know, millions of people took up that right um, in the years following 1989. And, um, you know, it was extremely well handled, I think, by um, the Federal Republic. Um, the person who was in charge of that process later became the president of the the Unified Germany, Jim Gauch. And um, and again, in South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission used archives as well as oral testimony to try and come to terms with their own difficult past, although the, uh, the previous regime destroyed lots and lots of archives, which is um, the, the commission cited as one of the barriers to their progress. And so I think we need to bear this in mind again in societies which have gone through, you know, civil upheaval and social unrest that, you know, archives can be part of um, a new and better future.
1: It's that disconnect uh, that I find that, that comes across your book that I find so fascinating as you point out. We're, we're history, the past, is more contested than ever. We're more aware of the the power of knowledge than, than, than ever before, and yet you feel it necessary to end your book with a coda having to, again, make the case for library and archives when you would think that, given that awareness, that case has already been proven. If, if we're aware of this knowledge, yet you, you would think that we would be aware of the value of archives, and yet there, there's also when I finished the book it was pretty clear why you needed to make that case as well well
0: thank you because um (laughs) I I feel it you know every day in my job um you know I feel the need to to actually make that case, because there's, you know, on the one hand, there's a kind of, you know, parts of society that are relatively affluent and, you know, have, you know, excellent access to technology. There's a kind of complacent sense, even among members of the University of Oxford, that, oh, everything's online and, you know, we don't need libraries anymore. Um, And yet, on the other hand, we have, um, you know, sort of, you know, that hidden role the work that libraries and archives do and we're not tend not to be very good at sort of blowing our own trumpet and making the making our own case in a very kind of public way in parts of you know public discourse and we need to get much better at arguing that case because you know the preservation of knowledge is a pillar of an open society alongside you know freedom of the press you know free elections independent judiciaries you know all of those things uh, an open plural society depends um, at, at, on them and the preservation of knowledge is one of those and it's not just about educating our citizens but in a in a democracy we need to have citizens who are educated or or have access to and regularly um uh, you know uh, have access to information but you know the rights of citizens are dependent upon you know access to laws Or access to, you know, documents which prove that you're a citizen, uh, you know, or prove that you have the right to own property or any of these kind of fundamental things that we only realize how important they are when we lose them. And sometimes in my own kind of debates with, um, you know, people, I I sometimes liken libraries and archives to, you know, um, plumbing you know it's when it works well nobody notices that it's there and it's only when it stops working that you realize how much you depend on it and what a what a terrible thing it is when you you lose running water or you can't flush your lavatory or take a shower or any of those kind of things that we do every day and we don't even think about it that's what libraries and archives are they underpin so much of um you know uh, a successful society they root communities um in their with their identity they give citizens from whatever their background however much money they have however accomplished they are at doing research they provide opportunities to get access to and understand the world through knowledge and um, they also give uh, an opportunity for you know betterment for improving yourself and you know libraries are um in in you know so, uh, societies like the UK and in 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 America and other parts of Europe we're lucky because you you know most of us have the right to walk into a library free of charge and access the the information there access uh, you know the internet um access um, books or documents from the past um and we we don't know how lucky we are and we must preserve that at at the for the sake of society and for the sake of of the future
1: we've taken up a lot of your time but before we go could you tell us what you're working on now
0: Ah, oh well. Um, in my professional life, I'm working on. Um, well, we're we're in the middle of a global pandemic, so we're trying to keep our community with access to knowledge. We're trying to make sure our collections are safe. Um, but also so that, you know, the students and researchers at the university, many of them, of course, working on the COVID vaccine or on therapeutic um, uh, issues to do with COVID. Um, we're trying to make sure they have access for information uh, and, you know, our open access repository will see, you know, is is publishing Oxford research on COVID all the time. And again, that's made freely available. And in my Uh, in my private life i'm just writing a piece for um a uk blog on what president trump's presidential library might be like and what the issues would be around that
1: Mm. Uh, it sounds like fantastic work and i thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us i hope you have a wonderful day
0: i've enjoyed talking with you and uh i hope your uh readers enjoy um uh, accessing my book now that it's available in the U- in the US and Canada
1: I hope they will too.